I'm going to need your help this morning. I want everybody to get one of these colorful New Testaments. They are at the end of the pews. Take one and pass it down, all right? There are pens in front of you in the pew racks, and I want you to get a pen. Now, these sections over here have more people, so if you run out of New Testaments, there's some on the front row, there's some down here, so we want everybody who can underline to get one of these. We're going to try to mark 600 New Testaments this morning with your help. Because we're going to give away these New Testaments over the next five Sundays as we approach Christmas. Guests who come, we will make available to them this New Testament. In fact, if you do not have a New Testament and you need one, we want you to keep this New Testament. Gift New Testaments are important. I have one in my hand right here. This is a gift New Testament. It was given to a man named David when he was a child in 1931. It made its way through his teenage years and then through World War II, where he served our country well, and he's kept it to this day. David, where are you? Wave your hand. I'm going to bring this back to, there's our veteran right there, bring it back to him. Did everybody get a Bible? All right. You, you can stay seated, David. I get it to you. Now, I know David to be a man who loves the Lord. He serves the Lord. He encourages me every week, brings me notes that he has from the Scriptures. And this Bible has been a source of inspiration and encouragement to him all through these years. So we're grateful for you, David. Thank you for sharing your gift New Testament with us. All right? All right. Has everybody got a New Testament that wants one? Everybody got one? Now, you have a bookmark in that New Testament. Do you see that? That bookmark, we want to remain in the New Testament uh, for the folks who will receive them, but you can use it as a straight edge, all right? By the way, if you really need a pen, that's a First Baptist pen, so go ahead and keep that too, all right? Just feeling generous this morning. Now, the Bible that you hold in your hand, this new covenant, uh, what I want to do is walk you through a part of it, okay? You know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in this New Testament, are about the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. They are called the Gospels. And then there is the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which... Dr. Luke writes to help us understand what happened in the early church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and how the apostles, particularly Peter and Paul, carried the gospel literally all the way to Rome and how the church began. So that's the first five books. Well, the sixth book in your New Testament there that you hold in your hand is called the book of Romans. And for a long time now, people have talked about the road in Romans, the Roman road. Now, me and some of the folks that are here have stood on the Roman road. How many of you have actually been in Rome and stood on the Appian Way? All right. There is uh, still there a road that you can walk from ancient times, and it runs uh, several hundred miles, actually, but 
When I think about the Roman road, I think about those old stones that we stood upon there in the city of Rome. And Paul writes the book of Romans uh, to the church to help them understand how to be saved. How God saves us. That's the message of the book of Romans. I met a young man this week who is looking for God. He told me, I don't believe in God. But my goal in life is to find him. So I'm kind of looking for you. He said, it sounds silly, I know. I said to him, well, God's looking for you. And that's what the book of Romans is all about. It's about how God is looking for you. And I want to say to you that if you're looking for God, then you're setting the search parameters. And you don't know enough to do that. You can't search, set the search parameters for God. God's way beyond your ability to comprehend. If you're ever going to find God, it'll be because He's looking for you. And He reveals Himself to you. And the Scripture says that He is not far from any of us. And today, He's not far from you. He's been looking for you all your life. He made you for Himself He never deserted you all your life long through, though you may not have known he was there. And God's search for you has brought you to this room this morning. God's looking for you. And I suggest that maybe you do what St. Augustine said. I say not to thee, seek the way. The way itself has come to thee. Arise and walk. Somebody in the room just needs to rise up and walk the way itself has come to you. Now, the front page of your New Testament has a label in it. And that is the identification of our church so that whoever carries this Bible away today or in the Sundays ahead will have the information there to contact us if they have questions or whatever. And on that title page, I want you to write under the label, Go to Romans 3.23. And the way we do Bible references is we put a 3 and a colon and 23. Because Romans 3.23 is the first stop on the road to salvation. Now... If you'll go ahead and turn over there to Romans 3.23, it's on page 132, all right? Making it easy for you. Now, that's in this paperback New Testament. It's It's on page 132, okay? Romans 3.23... Go ahead and underline it, all right? I put an asterisk beside it in my Bible because I wanted to call the reader's attention to it when they got there. So you can use that straight edge, underline it, and then put an asterisk beside it. Somebody's going to get this Bible in weeks to come, and we're just trying to take them through. 
these major points on the road to salvation. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what the Scripture says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, you may be thinking, why does the road start with such a depressing subject like sin? Why not start with something more positive? (laughs) Well, the Apostle Paul has woven in the positive and the negative news all through these first three chapters. In chapter 1, he gives glory to God and talks about the greatness of God a lot, but he also talks how all the Gentiles are lost. Gentiles are all the non-Jews in the world. He said they're all lost. And they should have known about God's power and his Godhead just based on the creation he made. And he said they had an ungrateful heart, even though they had the creation around them. And they have no excuse for their unbelief. They're lost. Then he says in chapter 2, and all the Jews are sinners too. They judge others with their self-righteousness when really they've broken the same laws and done the same things as the Gentiles. They had an advantage, these Jews did in that they received the oracles of God. That's a great advantage. They were part of the covenant people. But they could not keep the law of God. And so they are sinners too. Now, sin in the Bible is universal. Everybody has the plague. I've met very few adults who denied that they were sinners. I have to say I've met a few, all right? But very few. Most people on the planet, no matter what religious tradition they grew up in or none, reach the age of maturity with a sense of guilt and shame about past behavior. The Scripture says... They miss the mark. Sin is missing the mark. Now, I want to point out something to you right now, okay? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God is the idea of missing the mark. Most of us, when we think about sin, we think about committing adultery, murder, lying, Stealing. We think about things that we do. But here the synonym for sin is falling short of the glory of God. And we in a very cavalier fashion often talk about how, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody measures up all the way. We're all just human. We all fall short. Sometimes we even quote the verse. And say, we all fall short as if it's a good excuse for our moral failure. Actually, 
falling short of the glory of God, scoops up all of the sins of omission which we commit. It really focuses on the things we never get to. The good things we intend to do and never get done. The love we intend to share and we never do it. We get convicted about doing things, we don't get them done. We all fall short of the glory of God is one of those great statements about how universal sin is in the human family. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God also includes twisting the good or breaking the boundaries. Breaking the boundaries is transgression. That's usually what we think of when we think about sin. We think about going where we aren't supposed to go, taking the forbidden fruit, and that is sin too. Sin is missing the mark, it is breaking the boundaries, and it is twisting the good. That's the word iniquity in your Bible. So those three words summarize what afflicts every human being on the planet. Everyone is conscious of it. When you meet somebody, a stranger on the street, you can just assume they know they fall short, they broke the boundaries, they twisted what is good. The Bible says God made everything good, but humans always find a way to turn it into something bad through excess or whatever. So the words are sin, transgression, and iniquity. And the plague afflicts us all. The Bible starts here because it's common ground for every human being. Not everybody believes that God loves you. We'd like to start with that. Hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. A lot of people don't believe that. But if you start with, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Pretty much everybody starts nodding. Yeah, I know about moral failure. I know it in my own life. I know the darkness in me. I've been there. I've done that. That's the first place to get. On the road to salvation is knowing you're a sinner. Now, the news gets worse in the next stop. So I want you to go to the top of the page where 323 is and either write, go to on that top margin or put an arrow on that top margin and go to 623. So I want you to put 6 colon 23 on the top, all right? Then I want you to turn the page... And find 623 in the book of Romans. And go ahead and underline it. It is a core value of our church. It is our understanding of the world and the human condition. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's the first stop on the road to salvation. And the second is here in Romans 6. 23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
the wages of sin is death. I know people who want God to pay them their wages. They feel like God is indebted to them. And one day when they get to heaven, they're going to get what they deserve, which is a spot at the table. You know, they've been a good person. They were a good dad. They were a good employer. They were a good citizen. And if I ask you the question, why should God let you into heaven? Some of you are likely to go through the litany of good things you've done. And what you are saying is, I put in some time and God owes me. And when I get to heaven, he's going to throw open the gates and say, you got it. (laughs) Your wages is you get to be in heaven. You got the wages wrong. You can fix it in your mind this morning. In God's inspired word. Okay? The second stop on the road to salvation is the wages of sin is death. You haven't earned a spot in heaven for your good behavior. God doesn't owe you for your good deeds. If you're counting on being a good dad and citizen and provider to get you into heaven one day, you are going to be sorely disappointed. For your sin has already bought you something else. It bought you death. I'd like to tell you that death is not a subject of the book of Romans. But in fact, nearly all of chapter 5 is a description of the death that sin brings. And much of the book focuses on the penalty that we reap because we disobey God's law. We fall short of the mark. We break the boundaries. We twist what's good. And the scripture says, the wages, what sin earns, is death. Now, some of this you're already aware of. You already know. Because the scripture, when it talks about Sin and death, it says, death came into the world because of sin. So there is physical death. When we get to heaven, there'll be no more physical death. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful thing, you know. No more sorrow, pain, tears, crying. No more death. God will wipe every tear away. And there'll be no more death. But there's death down here. God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. After they ate, they were still walking around on the planet. But they had the death sentence. And one day they both went into the ground. And the sentence was, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So physical death is a part of the penalty of sin, the wages of sin. And then there is spiritual death. You may know about this too. Spiritual death is the idea that you're dead while you live. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. These folks were dead in trespasses, that's one of our words, and sins, that's the other word. Dead in trespasses and sin. What's he talking about? He's saying you can be dead while you live. 
spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. The idea of separation is the core meaning of death in the New Testament. So you can be walking around, talking, moving, and yet be dead on the inside. And you can take a barometer of death in your own life by thinking about the things, the good things that you have been separated from because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death kills the joy. It kills the peace. It kills the love. We live our lives sometimes without any abundance, all dried up on the inside, life looking black and white instead of full of color. We are separated from the spiritual qualities that make life worth living. They died when we sinned. The Scripture says to be separated from God is to be separated from life. So you can look like you're alive on the planet, but spiritually, on the inside, separated from God, all the good things are dying. The wages of sin is death, in that when we sin, we deal a death blow to relationships that are so important to our well-being, to our own sense of being in the world. Spiritual death comes because of sin. And then the Bible talks about eternal death in a place called hell. I never will forget my first trip to Israel. The guide taking us through the Valley of Gehenna. In your New Testament, the word hell sometimes translates the word Gehenna. It was actually a valley where they took the refuse of the city of Jerusalem and threw it over the side of the mountain into that valley. And the carcasses of dead animals. And they lit it and burned it. And they say that the fire burned continually there because it was burning up the refuse of that great city. Jesus used the word Gehenna to describe the future for somebody who was separated from God eternally. He said it was a place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. When the guide took us through the valley of Gehenna, he called it the valley of the screaming sons. Well, I wanted to know what he was talking about. He said it is in this valley where wicked kings Ahaz and Manasseh caused their sons to pass through the fire. In other words, like pagan kings, they sent their children as a sacrifice to the gods and made them pass through the fire. Child sacrifice happened in the valley of Gehenna. That's what, that was its history. Look. The wages of sin is death. It separates us from God, this sin does. It separates us from God now. We feel embarrassed to come into His presence. We feel the judgment of God when we come to church or start to pray. 
it makes us distant from God, these things that we do wrong that we feel guilty about. And sometimes we love our sin more than we love God, and so that drives us even further away. And when we get into the holy presence of God, we know we need to get rid of this stuff, and we don't want to feel the conviction about it. So we stay out of His presence. We don't want to go to the holy place. We don't want to talk to a holy God because we got this stuff we love that we hang on to and it's killing us. It's wages is death. Now, right now, in the present, good things are dying. And if we hang on to the separation from God and we love it more than Him and we choose to have the separation, then when we pass from this life into the next, Our choice becomes permanent. And to be in hell, Jesus said, is to be eternally separated from God and all that is good. Not so much a place where God sends people as a place where they choose to go in their mind, in their heart, in this life and the next The scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Hey, you can count on it. You're going to die. It's going to happen to you. You can rest assured that after death comes the judgment. The plan of salvation is the way God rescues you from the penalty of your sin. It's the way He wins you back. The way He brings you into His family from the separation that you rightly deserve because of the things that reside in your heart. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so now I want you to go to the top of that sheet where you're at, Romans 6.23, and I want you to write, go to Romans 5.8. Or maybe make an arrow. Just make it so the next reader understands where they are to go. And then underline Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, But God, all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. But God. Now, here we get to the good news. The bad news is worse than you ever thought it could be. The bad news is not that you're marginally tainted or that you're a little skewed. The bad news is that you're a sinner and you're broken to the core and your sin has earned you death and that is your right and just wages for what you have done. But the good news is God demonstrated His love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us.
our condition is plain in this verse. We are still sinners. While we're going our own way, or we're carving our own path, doing our own thing, breaking the laws that God has given us, loving our sin more than Him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says in the context here that for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners and at enmity with God, fighting him, hostile toward him, Christ died for us. And that is God's provision. God has done something wonderful for us. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. Now, I'm going to explain to you how the cross of Christ rescues you from sin. This is how the scripture says it. There was a righteous and perfect man who lived on this planet and never sinned. Among all the people who ever walked the planet, he alone lived a perfect life. When John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every point like you and I are, yet he never sinned. On the day of the Passover, they offered lambs. That lamb had to be without blemish or it did not qualify to be the sacrifice of the Passover. And so God's Son, without blemish, went to the cross to die for us. The Scripture says the wages of sin is what? Is death. And Jesus died. But he did not die for his own sin. The penalty was not for the wrong he had done. The Scripture says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That sound familiar? We all went our own way, okay? And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The scripture says that he was bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We are healed. In other words, God, who is holy and cannot overlook the penalty of sin, sent his perfect son to live a perfect life and die as a perfect sacrifice upon the cross at Calvary, paying for our sin. Sometimes we sing the song, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. The scripture says that the perfect one died for the guilty ones. And he who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we could become Righteous before God. Now, here's, here's the thing. The only righteousness 
that satisfies our holy God is a righteousness reckoned on the death of his son, Jesus. Every other kind of righteousness, no matter what that robe is woven from, is deficient and cannot take care of your sin debt, the wages you have already built up. You can't balance that account by yourself. That's called self-righteousness. And everybody wants to do that. The pride inside says, I can do it myself, thank you. Nobody needs to die for me, I can handle this. And it is the pride of the human heart that is the fundamental separation between us and God. I mean, the devil whispers in our ear the same thing he said to Adam and Eve. What has God said? You shall not die. Hey, you're going to be like God. You're going to be like God. And that's what we've always wanted down in our heart. Be God of our universe. You know, I did it my way. Sing it from the mountaintop. I did it my way. But your way can't get you into the presence of a holy God. The only way is Jesus himself and his death upon the cross for you. Even while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Really, with Romans 5, 8, you need to put your own name in there. God demonstrated his love for David in this. While David was still a sinner, Christ died for him. It's personal. It's for each one and every one. He died for us and for the sins of the whole world, the Scripture says. The declaration of 5.8 is that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we have passed from death into life. And that God has proven his love in this great climactic event giving his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. I hope somebody here today will turn loose of the illusion that it is a moral scale and that your good deeds outnumber your bad and that's how you please the Father in heaven. There is no such notion in all the scripture. That's why Paul the apostle quotes from the Old Testament so much as he makes his case for all of sin and the wages of sin is death. Not long ago, I spoke to the secular humanists, some of you remember. And at the question and answer time, one of them opened his Bible and read from Psalm 14. The fool is said at his heart, there is no God. And he read on down through verse 4. And when he came to the end, he said, now that's about atheists. And I said, no, it isn't. It's about us all. Paul the Apostle quotes the very passage this man read in Romans chapter 3, right before you get to all of sinned. 
He quotes that passage from Psalm 14. It is the human condition. Having gone our own way and reaped the just wages of death, Christ died for us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. Now, that does not automatically make you a Christian. Go up to the top of your margin and put an arrow or say, go to Romans 10, 9. All right? And here's the clincher. This is how God is looking for you. And the very thing that will open your eyes and bring you into his presence, though he is not far from any of you. Romans 10, 9. Underline it, please. If you confess or declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Then he says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. You see that in verse 12? There is no difference. He started out this book saying all the Gentiles are lost and all the Jews are lost. And at each point he reminds us he's talking about not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Not just Gentiles, but also Jews. Everybody on the planet. You always meet people who are saying, well, that's good for you. I mean, that's truth for you. And if you believe that, that's fine for you. What we're talking about is a God who loved us enough to send his one and only son, the creator God, whom we cannot know with our feeble imaginations and our search parameters. We can't find him, but he can find us. And he has through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, believing is this, okay? With a heart, man believes. It is trusting God and entrusting yourself to God. It is not just saying, I believe, but it is putting that into motion and into practice. Believe is a verb, not a noun. It's something that you do. You entrust yourself to God. And you make the confession, Jesus is Lord. That's the ancient Christian confession. You confess with your mouth, resulting in salvation. Hey, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are full of how it's all up to God and not us. But in chapter 10, verse 9, there are the instructions that you must do. Believe with your heart. Confess with your mouth. Have you ever done it? You remember when you believed in the Lord Jesus, when you entrusted your life to him, when you confessed him as Lord and Savior? Do you remember? If not, what a great moment to entrust yourself to him this morning. Bow with me, please. And if you don't remember a time when you believed in Jesus and entrusted your life to him, received his salvation by faith, you can pray this prayer. The words are not magic. God looks at your heart. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. 
And I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I open my heart to him. Please come into my life. I entrust my life to you from this day forward. Father in heaven, I pray that you will hear us as we call out to you and that you will draw people to yourself. We know you've been looking for us. Find us even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.